This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bobink. Welcome to episode 17 of Bobcast. I'm Andrew. I'm Caleb. We've got a big week for you here at Bobcast. We have a lot of new things going on. First, we are launching a new website today. You can go to bobcast.com. You can get all the information you want about Bobcast. It's where we'll post new episodes, contact information, other bonus content. You'll find it there also. It'll be your one-stop shop for all things Bobcast. And then also today, we are starting a new series. We've been going through Wonderful Works of God. We will continue to go through Wonderful Works of God uh, probably about every other week going forward. We'll be going through it in larger chunks, going through it a little faster. So uh, if you're following along with us in Wonderful Works of God, we haven't forgotten you. We'll be back on that next week, and we won't lose any pace on Wonderful Works of God. So our new series is called Bovink On. What we're doing is we look at various topics relevant in our day, what did Bob Inc. have to say about them? Bob Inc. has such a large and deep body of theological work. He wrote about so many things, and so many of the things he wrote were ahead of their time and anticipated a lot of the things that we see in our day. So what we're going to do in this new series is we're going to go through various topics and see what Bob Inc. has to say about them that can help us in our world today. I wonder what Bob Inc.'s ideas would be on... Diet Cola. Diet Cola. <laughs> Bobbing on airline food. What is up with that stuff? <laughs> you know, if they had Diet Cola in the days of Bob Inc., I'm sure it was very bad and probably dangerous. <laughs> it's like a... Yeah, they, they, they definitely had a Coca-Cola at that time, right? With the uh, actual yeah. cocaine. So you had the, Diet Cocaine. The namesake. <laughs> Diet Cocaine Cola. Ugh. <laughs> Cringe. <laughs> so today. <laughs> but we are not talking um, about Bob Inc. on Diet Cola. We are not aware of such material existing. If you find it, please email us at bobcast at gmail.com and let us know because we would love to know about that. No, we wouldn't. Well, you wouldn't. <laughs> so, Caleb, what are we really talking about today? Oh, Today, we're talking about, honestly, a really, really big, important topic for all of us here. And uh, if you're tuning in, I mean, you probably already saw the episode title on the church. This is a topic that's uh, especially near and dear to our heart, I feel, right now. Our kind of postmodern age, there's so many different conceptions of, you know, who we are as people, how we relate to each other. But then for Christians, uh, how do we relate to God as a people of God, as a community? So we really want to dig in and see a bit more uh, exactly what the doctrine of the church looks like as a helpful aid you know uh, andrew and i have both had the opportunity this summer to in in our separate internships uh, it worked out that we were both going through the belgian confession on the doctrine of the church so we thought this would be a great opportunity to share some of our studies with you and also dive a little bit further into bob Inc. and, and uh, his views here interestingly we decided to go through 
the doctrine of the church and the Belgic confession separately. We never talked about this, but we both ended up doing the same stuff. Providence. Providence. Yep. <laughs> um, now, an interesting thing about Bavink, we've talked a little bit about his biography and his background, not a ton, but one of the things about Bavink is Bavink only was a pastor in a church for one year of his entire career. The rest of the career he spent as a professor, as a writer, the, the Bavink that we know. And yet, all throughout his career, he remained a man of the church. He was very involved in the church in the Netherlands. He contributed to church assemblies. He wrote for the church. He helped the church navigate various situations and crises. The church was very near and dear to Bavink. Uh, in, in that same manner, um, near and dear, we're not talking just merely in the sense of, uh, say, his own uh Netherlands reformed uh, Dolianti context, the, the, the very specific congregations that he was a part of, but he had a, a large view uh, of the unity of the church uh, everywhere that could be found, or as we will talk about uh, the Catholicity of the church. Um, he, he had a heart for Christianity. He had a heart for Christ, the head, and all people who would comprise the body under him. Right. So beginning this discussion of the church... An important first question to ask is, what is the church? What is the essence of the church? What makes the church the church? Good question. <laughs> so what actually makes the church then? One thing we always want to consider then is in any part of whatever's going on in creation in the world, as coming from the counsel and will of God and as a work of God. I see the church, uh, the doctrine of church, as being the work of salvation and faith in this Trinitarian God uh, and the way that he does it uh, for his own glory. So Bovink's uh, definition of the church is uh, the community of those who share in Christ and his benefits. This community is made of those whom God has called to his salvation and then partake in uh, his work. So how, what does this look like then? What does this work look like? Well, and that's a big question. It's a very important question. And this is one of those areas where the Belgic Confession, it's one of the three forms of unity. It was the first of the three forms of unity to be written. In Article 29, there's a chapter on the marks of the true church, and there are three set apart. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. That's one. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. That's two. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. That's three. So these are the marks of a true church. These are the things that you look at, and from those marks you determine, you decide, you judge, is this a true church? And I think what's cool about uh, the three marks is when you think about it, when it comes down to it, all three of those marks are really based on the word of God itself. Uh, obviously, the pure preaching, the proclamation of that word, but then the pure administration of the sacraments. I mean, that's another part of the ministry of the word. Uh, and same thing of the practice of discipline. That is the practice of the authority and power of the word working out in the church's day-to-day -day life and governance. And so Bavink goes so far when talking about the marks. We're looking at his Reform Dogmatics, Volume 4, page 312, to say that really the one mark of the church is the word. 
The other two marks proceed from the word because it is from the word that we know our doctrine of the sacraments, and it is from the word that we know the necessity and purpose and process of church discipline. And the reason why these make the true marks of the church, why these uh, make the church is that without the word of God, as Bobbing says, there would be no church. You know, every single bit of the church's ministry comes down to it being a ministry of the word. The word is its very foundation as the power of Christ to save, as the power of Christ in bringing all things about according to his purposes. Right. It's it's the word that ultimately unites all of us because we'd have to ask the question of for someone to be a Christian, I mean, what do they have to believe, right? Right. They, they have to believe on Jesus Christ, the word that came down, God in flesh as a servant, to bring about his work of the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and thereby uh, also from his ascension, the sending of the Spirit to dwell in the hearts of believers and uniting us all as a single body in him. So the church is uh, the body of believers based on the word that dwells in us. We are the church. We are the church because of God's word, his word living and active. Yeah, it's it's really a, I mean, the, the word that, that makes us live is the manifestation of God's work. Christianity, faith, belief, all this is a manifestation of the power of God in us. This unity of believers uh, are all tied together by this word in what we call uh, the communion of saints or uh, what we can say Christian fellowship. You know, we, we all agree on what is necessary to salvation. I mean, we can summarize that with the Apostles' Creed or say the Nicene Creed, but we're united uh, and built upon this one single foundation. In this, though, we're called to, by the Spirit, then to gather in worship. We're called to come together and assemble according to the word, by the word, for the word in the worship and glorification of God. But how does this then uh, say the church differ than, uh, say, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? Well, Bavink treats this issue, it's pages 297, 298 of volume four. He makes a distinction between the church and between the kingdom of God. I mean, there's clearly a relationship between the two. There's clearly an overlap, but he gives us a couple of reasons why they're not quite the same. He says, in the first place, the kingdom of God with which Jesus' preaching begins is an eschatological term for the messianic kingdom with all its benefits. So what that means is it hasn't all happened yet. It hasn't all come to pass. The kingdom is not fully realized. There is a sense in which it has begun, but the kingdom is not complete until the end of the age, the new heavens and the new earth, the consummation. Uh, so while all believers share in the benefits of Christ from salvation in, in the word, in the working of the spirit, the, these things are being righteousness, peace, joy. We present them presently, but the kingdom is being built where? It's, it's, it's in our hearts presently. The, the church is the outward expression on this earth in this age of a spiritual reality that's only completely realized again at the consummation in the new heavens and in the new earth. We're not there yet. It's that already not yet tension. Yeah, this means that the distinction then of what the church is about is, as I've said, uh, a communion of saints. The church's emphasis is about this fellowship in whom Christ gives to each of these benefits of the kingdom. These benefits of the kingdom, as I mentioned, although also include spiritual gifts. You know, he's giving 
to each and every single one, various talents and skills by which he's building the church. He's he's adding to its number throughout the ages. And in this way, the kingdom is actually being advanced to its completion, which will come in the eternal age. So Christ is the master builder. You know, the, the church is the laborer and the kingdom of God is the grand project. So the church isn't just institutional. It's not just an organization that we see all around us here on the earth. You know, yeah. it, it, it is an organization. It has a government. It has, it has uh, procedures. We come together and we do certain things in a liturgy. But it's also, uh, as we say, charismatic. Um, like I said, the it's built on the Spirit's work and the gifts in us as Christ's possession of a community that's endeavoring to witness to the world. Uh, it's a spiritual endeavor, not just an institution that hangs out in, you know, one corner of the street and maybe another corner of a another street or another town. Or, I mean, it's not the building either, because, I mean, a lot of people today, you ask them, what's a church or where's the church? They'd give you an address. They'd yeah, give you it's the corner of, of 5th and Main or whatever. That's the church. But it's not. It's more than that. Another thing, too, you, you use that word charismatic. Now, that word has some baggage associated with it. It has some freight that would not be what we would mean or what Bob Inc. would mean. So would you mind maybe explaining a little more what you mean by charismatic versus what some today might mean by that? Yeah. So I think uh, starting with uh, what some might mean, um, you know, charismatic these days we see very much as a, a denominational area, a group of charismatics, uh, Pentecostals that look to exercise certain gifts of the spirit as kind of like a renewal of the earliest church, the most ancient early church before it got, you know, uh, corrupted or worn down with cold, dead uh, procedures and policies, you know, in, in its mm. governments. But I think that rather, when, when we talk charismatic, we're, I mean, it's just a word that comes from Greek uh, for essentially gifts. These are those talents and skills I was mentioning of a moment ago that the Spirit gives, and they actually uh, originate in Christ. What the Spirit gives to the people of God, you know, such as faith, in Christ's righteousness, peace, all these things, is manifest in real people. You know, the church is a gathered company as a living organism made up of real peoples. It is an institution. There is governance. There is structures. There's organization, as we've said. But this organization's not cold and dead. It's living people. The church is Christians. Christians right. are the church. You can't have one without the other. The body of Christ is manifested when we come together from the call to worship God as a single people, as one voice in one spirit, in one baptism, one faith under one head, Christ our Lord. As one body, it really helps to underscore this idea of the church as a living organism. For instance, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which sometime around the time when this episode releases, I'll be going on Steady Anchor podcast, another member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters, and I'll be talking about this communion of saints. But something really important in understanding that is Paul's analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 of a body with many parts. Each person in the church has gifting, has a unique role, has a part to play, and we need each other. We are meant to have each other. Say if you have a body, if everybody wants to be the brain, well, a brain doesn't work well without a heart. A hand doesn't work well without 
a nervous system and so on and so forth. We are a body. We are a living organism. Every part has its role to play and has its significance in the body. Right. And so in this way, this this manifestation uh, of the spirit in God's people isn't just faith, but the things we do too, the things he's doing and working out in us in this life of faith and all this in service to one another just as much as uh, in worship of and love of God. It is the manifestation of love of God and love of neighbor. Right. So yeah, in talking then about what this church is, we also, we want to move then a little bit more into uh, the particulars here. The church, I think, has the best definition from the Nicene Creed. Um, we see it's expressed in other confessions, but you'll, you'll have heard these phrases. The church is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. To really have a good sense of what the church is, uh, we want to look at these four parts, or uh, as uh, we could categorize them, four attributes, four features. We want to look at these four features. It's oneness in unity. Uh, it's holiness in its nature. It's Catholicity. It's universality in its uh, its scope, its range, and its apostolicity in its doctrine. Which, if you're interested in reading Bob Inc.'s particular take on this, this is pages 320 through 325 of Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 4. Yes, sir. The church is oneness. Um, now, this is a this is an interesting thing to think about when, you know, it's easy to say, yeah, the church is one, the church is united, but when we look around each other, I mean, there's so many denominations, so many differences in doctrine, so many disagreements in how we're even to run the church, all that kind of stuff. How is it that we can say it is one as a confession and it be true? Right. How does it have unity? Because so often these days, I think if you're ask somebody about the unity of the church and what does that look like? Usually people would say something to the effect of, well, the unity of the church means we all just get along, but that really doesn't cut it, especially when you think in terms of like false teachings and, and heresy and schism and those kind of things. We can't just get along with those. There can't be unity there. So what really is the unity of the church? What is it united in? What is it united by? Uh, I think one of the best ways to to think about this is how we tend to confess the church in our creeds. You know, the, the Apostles' Creed's broken up by talking about God the Father, God the Son, and then it goes into this section, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and then it starts talking about, I believe in the Catholic Church. A doctrine of the church starts with the understanding of this confession of, I believe in the Spirit. What is this Spirit's work? And I think uh, Paul in Ephesians 5 gives us a, a good insight to this. You know, Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It's by Christ alone, from his working in giving himself up for the church to make her holy. This is the point of why he's sending the spirit. It's a, a, a mystical union that unites us to Christ. Our unity is in Christ himself, the chief cornerstone uh, upon which the church is being built brick upon brick uh, of living stones of people. Our unity is in Christ, who he is and what he says. And that's a unity that, I mean, it transcends our local, even our temporal situation. It's a unity 
of all believers all over the world across all ages. We have unity with the saints of the Old Testament. We have unity with believers in the remotest parts of the earth. People will never meet in this life. People who couldn't even speak the same language, who might look very different from us and their lives are very different from ours. And yet we have unity with them, this unity wrought in Christ by his spirit. Really, this, the origin of the church does have its place all the way back even from uh, from Adam, from the earliest of clans in the patriarchs, uh, the, the kingdom of uh, national Israel. All those who are believers that Christ had set apart for faith, by faith, he has called into a one single fellowship of all ages from different parts of history, different ethnicities and nationalities. And it's an ongoing work. It's Hebrews chapter 11, talking about the saints of the Old Testament. Without us, without the New Testament church, the church in this age, they, that is the church, the whole people of God, would not be made complete. This has been God's plan all along. This wasn't like the church was the backup plan as our dispensationalist friends would like to say where God meant to save Israel, but Israel rejected Christ. So church happened instead. There's a unity. There's one people of God across all times. And uh, like you say there, one people. Uh, again, we get back to this motif of a uh, the living organism, this living body of real people. The unity of the church is an essential thing as uh, actual people that are gathered inseparably joined and governed and built up through the spirit you kind of touched holiness too yeah so ephesians 5 is also a great passage then for bringing us into uh not just unity but then it's holiness it's purpose you know all those who have been justified have been reconciled to god and have access in one spirit to the father and throughout the course of the believer's life we're being uh consecrated and purified set apart in this process of sanctification of, of being made holy let me ask a question then. Does that mean that we become perfectly holy once we enter the church, once we are in Christ? Definitely not. I mean, it, it's easy to see, uh, especially when you, you know, we look around uh, each other, that uh, believers can be hypocritical. We do sin. We do err. The church is not made up of perfect people. There is no perfection until we reach completion of glory when we cross that finish line and actually see Christ face to face. But the believers have been set apart for spiritual renewal. It, it is a sure guarantee. Uh, it's, it's totally objective because of the work of Jesus Christ. When he uh, who was without sin died on the cross and resurrected... For our forgiveness of sins, it was as a substitution. He died in our place. And at the same time, when we receive the Spirit, God is also giving us uh, Christ's righteousness. He's imputing it to us, counting Christ's righteousness as if it was our own. So if we have Christ's righteousness, and that's imputed to us, and that counts for our holiness, does our holy living matter then? Does that mean anything? Uh, our own holy living matters in that it's as Christ's uh, spirit working out in us. I think of uh, Ephesians 2 here, where uh, Paul says, you know, by grace you've been saved. 
you know, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made uh, alive together with Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. We are saved by faith, not of our own doing, and not as a result of work. So our salvation cannot be earned. That work of salvation is not ours, but we are Christ's workmanship, and we are made new in Christ for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand. He set us apart for good works. And so that spirit that's in us works in us in an active holiness. It is uh, true works that we do by the spirit in us. Right. Even though our holiness is never perfect in this life, it doesn't mean that it's nothing. It's definitely very important. Bavink says on the top of page 322, uh, again, volume four of dogmatics, although even the holiest have only a small beginning of this perfect obedience in this life, they nevertheless conduct themselves according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. So being that we confess the three forms of unity, we confess the Heidelberg Catechism. This is where we understand guilt, grace, gratitude, that structure of the Heidelberg Catechism. Because of this great work that Christ has done for us in saving us, in redeeming us in the gospel, our obedience proceeds from that ingratitude. We're not obeying, as you hinted at before, we're not obeying to save ourselves. We're obeying because we're saved. Because this great thing has been done for us, we cannot but strive to love and to obey this God who has done great things for us. Right. And again, with uh, First John, you know, you, you see this argument that he works out of uh, the saints are those who walk in the light. You know, he who says he is without sin uh, is a liar and makes God out to be a liar. But rather, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the only righteous, who is our advocate in heaven, advocates on our behalf when we do sin, if we do sin. You know, he's the propitiation of our sins. He paid for it. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It is that life in gratitude. And this is a great thing because uh, this this tells us that you don't have to already be perfect to be a Christian. Um, you know, I think that that's a tendency you see in, say, uh, certain strands of Wesleyan uh, holiness, congregations, uh, some charismatics, um, mm -hmm. or even in the ancient world, uh, the Donatists. They wanted the purity of the church of those who were uh, basically perfected in Christ as saints. Right. Actually, in this section of dogmatics, Bavink gets into that discussion, some that famous debate between Augustine and the Donatist, the Donatist being a, a schismatic sect that, yeah, wanted a purer church, but in doing so separated from the church. And it was one of the two major controversies of Augustine's career, the other being his controversy with Pelagius over soteriology, over justification. I'm glad you bring up this issue of uh, separation from the church, though, because then this also begs a question then of, uh, as we've already hinted at earlier, what do you do with various denominations? What do you do with all these kind of differences? We, we, we spoke about it in uh, the section on unity, but we can revisit it a little bit more here now at this topic of Catholicity of the church. So, if the church isn't just uh, one in unity, and uh, it's not just holy, but is also Catholic, uh, what do we mean by Catholic? Are we talking Roman Catholic here? Well, I would certainly hope not, or we're in trouble being Reformed people as we are. 
Uh, I like that. Uh, actually, in, in that way, um, we say we certainly hope not because uh, Bob being at the bottom of page 322 of volume four of his dogmatics does say he notes how it is funny that the the terms Roman and Catholic are uh, mutually contradictory. The, the Roman Catholics essentially have their unity under uh, the papacy, uh, this one visible representative of Christ on earth and uh, this visible institution, this this worldly organization that can be found, you know, from one end of the globe to another. You know, this this Catholicity, uh, they would say, comes down to you can find them, uh, this this one church all over the earth. Uh, it's existed on the earth from the beginning of the world, and it possesses, preserves, and distributes all the grace and truth intended by God for uh, salvation. Uh, sects don't have this. So by Rome's definition, we would be sects. Now, we can agree with the Roman Catholics in a manner of like, yeah, you can find the church in different parts of the earth. Since the beginning of the earth, there's truth. But... It's not because this institution just exists. It's not because there's a pope. Right. The difference is we believe our Catholicity is based on the Spirit's work, on the Spirit himself. Yeah, it's not Catholic in an institutional sense like Roman Catholic. It's Catholic as in the one unified people of God, again, across times, across peoples, across other things that in the human race might otherwise divide us. We are united in Christ one universal church because that's what catholic means it's been used so much by rome and associated with rome that we hear catholic and our minds instantly jump to roman catholicism but that is what the word catholic means is universal scripture essentially gives us this concept in one manner we could just say in uh the great commission of matthew 28 where you know we're to Go and baptize and make disciples, uh, command them to all uh, to do all that Christ has taught the apostles. To go and make disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And in this, as Bob Inc. notes on page 323 of his dogmatic, this universal church embraces all true believers. And it's, it, it's manifest in varying degrees of purity in various churches. So there can be differences in in our doctrines, in our approaches, can have these disagreements. Some churches are still wrong. Some churches are still impure. But do they confess the tenets of the faith? What is necessary to salvation in the Apostles' Creed? Do they confess and uh, trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior? This is the basis of this Catholicity, and so uh, this this religion, this this our, our faith encapsulates all kinds of people in all various situations and backgrounds from every time and place in history and setting, culture, uh, economic situation, educational background, uh, everything. That's Catholicity. So we've looked at three of these four attributes from the Nicene Creed. The one holy catholic we have one left apostolic what does it mean to be an apostolic church well this means that uh you have the authority uh, of the apostles handed down to a bishop to another bishop right again i would certainly hope not <laughs> that is the position of rome they would believe that it's apostolic office apostolic authority apostolic succession that began with peter 
allegedly as the first pope and then has been handed down in all the popes ever since. So again, it's an institutional apostolic. It's the church that institutionally goes back to the apostles and therefore apostolic church. And uh, I think also caveat there and that not just uh, Rome, but you do find uh, this teaching of apostle down to bishop to bishop also in uh, Anglicanism in some uh, Methodist churches as well. Also Eastern Orthodoxy. Correct. Yeah. Eastern Orthodoxy too. You know, the the whole idea here, as you were just saying, is basically the, the office is handed down to another office bearer. These guys are the guards, the watchmen of the church. But when we say apostolicity and what we see Calvin talking about, as well as uh, Bobbing here, we're not talking about people, but we're talking about doctrine, right? Well, think about it this way. What do we have now from the apostles? Well, we, we have... Uh, we have pointy hats and uh, cool robes uh, and some nice thrones. Mm, try again. <laughs> okay. How about how about teachings? Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we have, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two, talking about the church, verse nineteen and following. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then this in verse twenty built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So apostles and prophets, what do we have from the apostles and prophets? Well, we have a book, mm -hmm. a rather large book, a book that sits on many people's shelves and collects a lot of dust, but we have the word of God. We have the Bible. That is what the apostles have given us. That's how we determine the apostolicity of the church. What did the apostles teach? What did the apostles give the church to know and to do? So the whole counsel of God basically is being handed down um, first from Christ himself and his teachings to his disciples. And, and these disciples amongst them, apostles and prophets, they're going and handing it along to other pastors and teachers, to other disciples and believers all across the ancient world and ultimately spreading. Uh, you, you said um, from Ephesians 2, this chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and you have the apostles who were laying the foundation. You know, so we, we can get this image then of, uh, of building a house or building a temple. The apostles laid down this foundation by the word according to what Christ had instructed. When the apostles passed, they had trained up pastors and elders and others to come after them and take bricks and start building, building this temple of the Lord, all according to the word of Christ, laying brick upon brick, as we said earlier in the show, of living stones. Right. This temple of God is being built up into a majestic tower. So when we say apostolicity, Andrew, we don't have apostles anymore. So, I mean, how is it that we have apostolicity preserved? Who's helping build this church? Well, Christ builds his church ultimately, but the church is built on the word of God. This apostolicity, it's not in an institutional continuity of a succession of apostles into bishops into popes into whatever the church the true church is the church that is built on the word of god that follows the word of god that does what the word of god instructs it to do this is where we find ourselves at variance with rome because rome while they claim to institutionally go all the way back to the apostles 
They have deviated from the word of God. They don't do what the word teaches. They don't practice what it teaches. They don't teach what it says. They teach instead the traditions of man, the rulings of the councils and the popes as infallible, even though they go against the teaching of scripture. It's a fascinating thing in that the ordering of the church, of what we have now, of what we understand about, say, uh, pastors and elders and believers. Yeah, it is coming through the word. And we, so these things were being shown at the time that the apostles were walking around. How do we know that we're supposed to have deacons? How do we know we're supposed to have uh, preachers? What are the qualifications for these people? You know, uh, what do we know about the duties of a Christian and believer and how to uh, persevere in the faith? We're getting the instructions, the guidelines, the principles for how to order a church, how to uh, maintain the faith from the apostles. Well, then you see this continuity in governance. You look at Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council. You notice some things about that council. You have the apostles and the elders there acting as equals. It's not the apostles are there telling the elders, hey, do this. They're working together on this problem, which is the problem of the Judaizing heresy. It's the same problem that Paul wrote the book of Galatians for. It's the apostles and the elders together, and those elders would ultimately, because the apostolic office does not continue, those elders succeed to the apostles in ruling and governing the church. So a church ordered according to scripture has elders, it has deacons, it has this governance set in place. Now another thing about the Jerusalem Council that's interesting is because our Roman Catholic friends, they want to argue the primacy of Peter and how he was the first pope. Peter does speak at the Jerusalem Council, but he's not the one who delivers the clinching argument. That is instead James, who makes the speech that basically becomes the decree of the council. Another great note there on Peter. Um, now, Andrew, you're currently working through a, uh, a sermon series on First Peter. Perhaps you can also make comment. First Peter 5, uh, starting in verse 1. Uh, Peter is writing to a group of elders and he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he, he, he gives an exhortation and he starts off first by appealing not to his apostolicity, but he actually appeals first to himself as an elder, as a fellow elder, as an equal here. Yeah. And then to a witness of the sufferings of Christ, or in other words, an apostle. And then he also appeals to himself as a fellow partaker in the glory. So he's appealing to him also himself as a believer. And then he gives the charge, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He, he, he gives a statement here of not having a lording over attitude of your authority. So if we, we have a, a supposed first pope here, uh, I mean, he's denouncing dominance here amongst the elders and appeals to himself as a fellow pastor. He's not saying, do what I tell you. He's saying, I am one of you. I am like you. You, ha you elders of the church have the same authority, the same capacity to rule over the church that I do. So... If you're listening to this, like, if you are in a true church, a church where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, if you have elders, those elders are just as much leaders of the church as Peter was. 
Right. And really, it's because when it comes down to it, um, where are they getting that authority? It's nothing of them in and of themselves. And it's not even just the nature of the office as like, you know, oh, they have that title. But it's because that office actually belongs to Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ's office, and he's given it as a gift, a manifestation of his spirit in the congregation that we choose from among us elders, leaders, deacons, those who are qualified, as uh, Paul speaks about in uh, 1 Timothy 3. uh, He talks about it also in Acts 20. You know, there's, there's this charge of choose the leaders from among you, not an appointed bishop from other bishops. I mean, in the, in the same way, you have Paul, when him and uh, Barnabas were commissioned by the church of Antioch in Acts 13, the, the Holy Spirit tells the Antiochian church, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them. Uh, and so then the Antiochians uh, respond with prayer. They lay hands on the men and then they send them off. And then the next verse says that these men were sent off by the Holy Spirit. You have this uh, joining of the God working through his church to confirm calls uh, to uh, set apart leaders and that these leaders are uh, accountable to the church that calls them. Saul and Barnabas would return to Antioch and uh, various other churches uh, and give reports to the elders that gather there of all their work. We're seeing a handing down, not of just merely this succession of people, you know, we're seeing a succession of uh, teaching. If you have page 324 there on your Reform Dogmatics, this comment that Bob Inc. says here, Protestants were right in saying that it's not the succession of places and persons, but the succession of doctrine as the distinguishing feature of the true church. And in this, we have to understand that in, in the doctrines, uh, what's being handed down in the faith is everything of the word, everything of the word. And all of this uh, is in building up the body for the purpose of service and fellowship. It's all for uh, the love of God and one another. The doctrine of the church flows from this whole thing of uh, its oneness, its, its holiness, its Catholicity, apostolicity is all about this binding together under the head as a single body, as a single people to the glory of God and the love of uh, the brethren. Amen. So we've covered a lot of ground here in a short amount of time. I mean, we could do episode after episode about probably just each of these points that we talked about. The church is such a huge topic, such an often misunderstood topic, but we've given you something here that hopefully is helpful, hopefully can help you to understand the church better, understand what the church is and does, and even understand your place in it. If you have any questions, if you'd like to follow up with us, again, you can send us an email, bobcast at gmail.com. Don't forget also, as I mentioned earlier, check out our new website, bobcast.com. And we'll be back next week. We'll get back into wonderful works of God, getting into the purpose of general revelation. So until then, totzines. Totzines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Bobcast. And email questions or comments to bobcast at gmail.com. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reform Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reform Podcasters feed to get more great theological content. 
Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.